We know from Scripture that we serve an all-powerful God who can deliver His people from any circumstances. We know that in fact, but when it comes to our individual circumstances, sometimes we ask the question, can He really? And that's the question we want to answer in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3. From the time we first start reading the Bible, we know that God can do the impossible. If you were saved as a young person or if you grew up in a good church, you heard all sorts of stories about God doing the impossible, that God comes to the aid of His people. But then we look at our own lives, even after considering all of those truths, we look at our own lives and we think, when was the last time that God displayed His power in my life? And let's be honest, God is not spectacularly intervening on my behalf when I'm in trouble trouble seems to continue. When my job is a wreck, God doesn't show His power by removing the problem from me. When I have a challenge in my relationships, God doesn't change anything. When there's financial difficulty, it only seems to get worse. And so we're compelled to ask the question, can God really deliver? In Daniel 3, we're going to see that God can deliver And that He often does deliver, but sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He delays in delivering, and we need to have the right response even when He doesn't. And because of that, as believers, our faith must be firmly in God and our affection for Him must be in Him, first of all, not in His gifts. Certainly, we should treasure His gifts and take joy in the gifts that He gives, but ultimately, our treasure should be in the person of God Himself. Can our God deliver? This passage seeks to show us the reality and power of God as the great King in a passage that you know well. So I'll just read the first seven verses just to get an idea of of the story that we're looking at here. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to, the, to, the, to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up, had set up. 
No doubt you've heard this story before and perhaps many times. And what we're going to see here is that our God is able to deliver. Our God is able to deliver. In verses 1-7, through we see the pressure of conformity as we just looked at these verses. The construction of the gold image is found in verse 1. Fifteen to twenty years have passed since the time that King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. Do you remember the dream? The dream, he, he thought for sure it had to be from God or something of very important, very much importance. And he couldn't get anyone to interpret the dream until finally they found Daniel. Daniel found him. And he found out that his kingdom was kingdom described by the head of gold. His kingdom was flourishing. Fifteen to twenty years later, his kingdom perhaps is even greater. And his earthly rule is unquestioned. Daniel and his three friends are still serving him as officials in his empire. Daniel, second in command, the three friends are uh, leaders of the one of the provinces. But past accomplishments and present power aren't enough for King Nebuchadnezzar, are they? He wants universal loyalty. He wants everyone who is under his rule to come and show their loyalty to him. And so... Uh, he sets up this gold image. Some historians suggest that there was a revolt against his leadership a few years before this image was crafted. And so in order to show his power, his rule, and his demand for loyalty, he sets up this image and has them all come to the dedication. This image could have been of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, many people believe that is the case, that it was just a, uh, uh, a sculpture of his own body. Or it could have been of Babylon's chief god. And this is probably more likely that, that, um, that King Nebuchadnezzar would have had them worship his god, showing whose god really was in control. It's not clear why he made this image out of gold, but I think it very well could have been because of the dream that he had 15 years earlier that showed him as uh, represented by the head of gold. And he's saying effectively, by making a whole body of gold, and no, I'm not just the head that's going to be destroyed. My whole body is gold and no one's going to stop me. No one's going to crush me. There's nothing strong enough to crush me. I'm not going to be replaced by another kingdom. Remember, the second kingdom was going to be replaced. The head of gold was going to be replaced by the, the, the chest and arms of silver, which represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Say, no, no one's going to, to destroy me. And so in response to that revelation, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, likely sets up the statue, the statue similar to the one that was in his dream. This image was made of gold. When I say that, I I hope you understand this. Not solid gold. All the gold that's been mined uh, in the last six thousand years is said to be 150,000 cubic square feet. 150,000. And this image, if it were 90 foot tall and nine feet wide, which it is. Uh, then that would take up about 5,500 cubic feet of gold. And so likely it wasn't that much gold. More likely it's like the idol, the golden, or not the idol, but the, uh, the golden altar of incense in the temple. Do you remember the temple that was set up by Moses that God had commanded? This is actually a wooden structure that was overlaid in gold. And so likely that's what's going on here with this huge idol. Its dimensions are a little bit awkward if you think about it. It's 10 to 1, that is height to width. And if you think about a human in those terms, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It would be like a six foot uh, tall 
person being just a, uh, a few inches wide. And so that's likely not what's going on here. Um, uh, it, it's probably that the, the 90 feet in height also includes the base of the idol. So if you've seen renditions of this idol, what, what authors or illustrators think that it looks like, uh, sometimes they have a whole platform that's about 40 to 50 feet tall, just the platform, and then the idols on top of that. Whatever the case, it was a, an imposing structure, nine stories high, think of it, and uh, made of gold. And it was set up in the plain of Dura, and they were all to come here to the dedication of this idol. And they weren't just to come and see it, see what great power that he has, but they were, verses 2 to 5, they were commanded to worship it. When all the rulers, and they're listed a couple times, including the satraps, which were probably the highest form of official in the government, above the governors, some kind of a, a higher ranking governor, when all of them came together, they were not just supposed to see the dedication take place, but notice what he wants them to do. Verse 4, To you the command is given, O peoples and nation, that at the moment you hear these musical instruments, the end of verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So the, the, it's not something just to view, but to actually worship. And this event gives us an idea of how powerful the king is, that he has all of his rulers and all the land come from the various parts of the world. Verse 4 says, all you peoples and nations. It's not just like you Babylonian rulers, you come and worship this God that we all agree is, is our God. Right? No, it's all you people and all you nations and all you men of every language. You come and you fall down in worship. And what's the consequence if they don't? The penalty for defiance, verses 6 and 7. It is whoever does not fall down, verse 6, shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. If you don't worship the image that I have set up, which shows your loyalty to my rule over you, you see that blazing furnace over there? You're going in. You will be thrown into it. Now, if you think about it, in order to make this idol, they would have needed to smelt gold. In order to smelt gold in a large amount, they would have needed a huge furnace. Scholars believe that the furnace during this time would have looked like a, a milk bottle standing up. That at the top there was an or, opening to insert the ore and a, and a smaller opening at the bottom to insert the wood and the charcoal and the temperatures of these ovens could reach as much as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, the reason that they think this is partially because of verse 22. Look at verse 22. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who, and then notice this phrase, who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's, it's as if they're walking up a hill. So this furnace would have been probably set inside of a hill the, you walk up to the hill to put the, the ore in the top and then there was an opening on the bottom that you could see in. You could see the flames and everything. That's how we're going to see that King Nebuchadnezzar notices uh, what, what's going on inside later. So when they heard the music, every people, every person of every nation was supposed to fall down and worship. And verse 7 tells us that's exactly what happens. I would imagine that you would see people as far as your eye could see thousands and thousands of rulers and officials and attendants telling you that these are the 
the uh, the most powerful people in all the world, and they are doing what? Like a wave, they are just falling down in worship to this God because of King Nebuchadnezzar's great power. They are forced to do so. So the pressure to conform is very high. It wasn't like, you know, if someone came up to us on the sidewalk and said, hey, do you want to come to my church? you want to come to my synagogue or my mosque? And we say, no, thank you, we're, we're all set. No, it was, if you don't come and worship my God, then you will die. That's what's going on here. And so the pressure to conform is very high. In verses 8 to 23, we see the danger of devotion to God, the danger of devotion to God. In verses 8 through 12, we have these three friends of Daniel who defy the king and, and these Chaldeans. Verse 8, for this reason at the time, certain Chaldeans, Babylonians, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all these instruments, end of verse 10 says, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the blazing fire. There are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So if all the people... You just picture if you're standing on a hill and looking down at the plain of Dura with all these people bowing down. Maybe it was hard to see because there were so many people that three were standing up. King Nebuchadnezzar apparently didn't know, but these Chaldeans reported them. And of all the people that bowed down, there were three who did not. And so they're quickly reported. Now, one person is noticeably absent. Did you notice that? That we would expect not to bow down. Who is it? It's Daniel. Where's Daniel? There are lots of suggestions as to where Daniel is. The first is, and obviously you, I think you would disagree with this, that Daniel is actually there and he's bowing down to the idol. Right? That's probably not the case uh, because he later would pray before an open window when he easily could have closed it or not prayed at all. Daniel is not a man of, of a, a soft spine, so to speak. So it could be that. could be that Chaldean, the Chaldeans were afraid to report Daniel. Remember, what was Daniel's position? He was second in command in all the land. And if he, they reported him and king said, no, this is, my, this is my man. You're not going to talk about him. That's possible. They could have been afraid of it. Or it could be that Daniel was simply ruling while King Nebuchadnezzar was away. Right? If King Nebuchadnezzar is out at the plain of Dura, who's back home ruling Babylon with all the rest of the people? And I think that's what's happening because Daniel actually is given that responsibility in chapter 2, verse 49. Uh, uh, verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Daniel's job was to rule Babylon. And there's time for everybody else to come to this dedication of the image. Daniel, I think, had to stay behind. And so, most likely, that is where he is. Otherwise, we would expect Daniel to stand up for these three men and say, listen, uh, the other option, by the way, is that Daniel is sitting there with King Nebuchadnezzar while King Nebuchadnezzar is kind of watching the whole thing. And then they, they are brought before Daniel and King are standing there. No, uh, Daniel would have stuck up for them and, uh, and protected them, certainly. Uh, and likely he wouldn't have been uh, wanting to be a part of this kind of a ceremony anyway. So, the three friends are the focus of this chapter. 
And verse 13 shows us that the king is not very happy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. But in verses 14 and 15, the king gives them a second chance. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you, did not, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready... At the moment you hear the sound of all these instruments, in the next part of the verse, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, then very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Maybe these three men didn't understand the serious consequences of disobeying my command to bow down to this false god. That maybe they don't see it. So I'll give them another chance. Do you see that furnace over there? I'm not joking here. So I'll give you one more chance. And if you do, then fine. We'll we'll just forget this all happened. But if you don't, if you don't bow down this time when you hear the music, then there is no one who can save you. That's what he says in verse 15. No one can save you. Well, notice the faith-filled response of the young men in verses 16 to 18. The faith-filled response of the young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in verse 16, they say, listen, we don't have to answer to why we're not devoted to your God. We don't have to give an answer for that. And the truth is, with your threat of throwing us into the furnace, we are confident, verse 17, in God's power. And we are confident that He has the power, He has the ability to deliver us. Notice the statement in verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace. The idea is, if our God has a reason to deliver us on His terms, and it's according to His plan, then He's going to do it. In other words, we're going to answer your question. What was the king's question? Look at the end of verse 15 again. What God is there who can deliver you out of My hands? King Nebuchadnezzar saying, there is no God more powerful than me. No one can unseat me. No one can defy me. So, if you defy me, what God do you think can deliver you from my hands? Do you know what their answer is? Verse 17. Our God. The God whom we serve. Look Look at that verse again. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of flaming fire. You see what they believed in here? They believed in the possibility of God's deliverance. In other words, they were certain in His deliverance, but in their specific case, they knew that He could deliver, but in their case, they weren't sure if He, he was going to, right? Because God didn't reveal it to them. Listen, if, you bow, if they tell you to bow down to a false god, I'm going to deliver you out of the furnace. God never promised that to them. And we know that because of verse 18. Look at verse 18 but even if He does not. So in other words, we know He can deliver, verse 17, but if He doesn't, we're still not going to worship your your God. 
they also understood that God may not use His ability to deliver them. They were confident in His power, but were not confident in His power in their situation because God hadn't revealed it to them. That is, they believed God had the power to deliver, but they weren't sure if He was going to use His power in this case. Have you ever been there? You know God can deliver, but you're not sure if He's going to deliver in this case. He may allow you to walk through that difficulty. Friends, that is faith. It's the belief that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 And when it says there in Hebrews 11.6 that He is a rewarder, it doesn't mean He's going to reward in every case the way we want Him to. But it means that He is a rewarder on His terms. It could be, and Daniel's three friends understood this, that God wanted to show His power through their death. That God wanted to show how worthy He was of worship. Like when God took away all those things from Job, what was He trying to show? He was saying to Satan, listen, I am worthy of worship even when I take everything away. God may have been showing that through these three friends, that through their death, that they could show that that God was worthy of being worshipped. So they weren't sure what God was going to do here. We we tend to um, we we tend to embellish sometimes the heroes of Scripture as if they know the outcome before it happens. But the, these three men clearly did not. They were confident in God's power, but they weren't sure if God was going to use His power in their case. But they were not willing to bow down to this false god, no matter what. That's faith. That's faith being expressed in real words and action. Verses 19 to 23, apparently the music plays again and they do not bow down. And, and at this point, the, the king is extremely angry. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Probably an idiom for saying just as hot as possible. Make it as hot as you possibly can. Verse 20, He commanded certain valiant warriors who in His army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Shocked and angry, the king orders the furnace be heated to the extreme. And then he sends his strongest men to take them into the furnace, probably because, remember the question, what God is able to deliver you? They say, our God is able to deliver us. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if they plan on being delivered, I'm going to make sure that they're securely taken to the, fir- the, the flames of the furnace of blazing fire so that they cannot be delivered. And so he sends his strongest men and ironically, these men are the ones who are killed. And the, the text seems to point out that they still had all their clothes on. That's going to be important later. And that they're sent into this, probably dropped in. Verse 23 says they fell into, so again, probably up on a hill, throw them down into the furnace. 
They get to the base of the furnace and there King Nebuchadnezzar can see through the opening and the bottom and notice what happens in, um, in the next few verses. And this, I think, is response to his initial question. What is his question? Who or what God is able to deliver? And they respond by saying, our God whom we serve is able to deliver. And now here God responds in a powerful way through deliverance, that yes, I am able to deliver. Notice verse 24. And Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So, there's a couple things that, that we should notice. One is, again, they're fully clothed in this fire. The, the clothes are not burning up. And they were tied when they went in. And now they're loosed and walking around. And then thirdly, obviously, is that there's a fourth person walking around in the fire with them. And King Nebuchadnezzar is just beside himself. He doesn't know how to explain this. He calls it a son of the gods. Someone who looks like a son of the gods. This is probably the best way that he could explain the situation, again, from a pagan mindset. But we know that it was possibly an angel. God was sending a deliverer like the angel came to Daniel's side in the den of lions. But most likely, it was actually the angel of the Lord who is the pre-incarnate Christ. Right? It is Christ before He came uh, to, be, to be born of Mary. And He... He appears in the Old Testament as He often does. And, and He likely is here in the furnace with the three men. And the purpose of His appearance was not just for the benefit of King Nebuchadnezzar to confuse Him and to, to show God's great power, but more likely it was for the benefit of the three friends. Because what is it that we want more than anything when we're walking through a difficult trial? Is it not? to know that God is there. That God hasn't left us alone. And that is exactly what God does here in the person of His Son. He gives the three men a means of escape, which He will do. He'll deliver them from the flames. But at the same time, He sends a representative, Christ, to let them know, I am here and I care. And that's our God. Well, in verses 26 and 27, King Nebuchadnezzar brings them out uh, he's shocked. He has no choice but to release them from the furnace. And in verse 26, he calls them, notice the end of the verse, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High, and come here. So they call, he calls them now servants of the Most High God. No God is able. What God is able to deliver you? And in his mind, no God is able to. Now he's saying, you are servants of the Most High God. His tune has changed a little bit, hasn't it? And in verse 27, all the, the officials who were before bowing down, now they've kind of gathered around this furnace to see what's going on, and now they want to examine these three men who have been in the fire. And they're amazed. Look at, look at what they're amazed at. The second part of verse 27. They gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Now, have you ever been to a campfire and walked away without smelling like fire? Okay, 
These guys walk out of this blazing furnace not having one hair singed. Their, their, their clothes are fully intact and they don't even smell a fire. And what they're seeing very clearly, these officials, is that these three men and their God is a God that's worthy of worship. And so King Nebuchadnezzar recognized this in a veiled way as well in verses 28-30. to 30. Again, as a pagan, from a pagan perspective, he doesn't know how to respond to the situation. But he effectively says, listen, because you were saved, then no one can oppose their God. No one can persecute these men. But what I want you to notice here is, is the, the way or the means by which these three friends put their trust in God. Notice how King Nebuchadnezzar describes it in verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent His angels and delivered His servants who put their trust in Him. So now we can stop and say, how did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put their trust in God? And notice the answer that King Nebuchadnezzar gives. It is by violating the king's command and yielded, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. This is what faith in God looks like. It is not being willing to bow to the false gods of this world no matter how much pressure. Even King Nebuchadnezzar recognized that. Friends, the sloppy, agape Christianity that is out there might like us to think that the way that we put our trust in God is become as much like the world as possible. You know, in this case, a lot of other people are bowing down. Not that big of a deal one time. I mean, we all know what you're really thinking in your heart. But we are not to become like the world. That is a lie of Satan. Trust in God here is described as violating the king's command to worship a false god and yielding up their body so as not to worship any other gods. That is, being willing to go to the farthest extreme of giving our very life if necessary because we are so confident and so sure that we will not serve another god other than the true and living God. And so in verse 29, the king makes a decree not to cause offense. You're not allowed to cause offense to anyone who worships their god. And notice his conclusion in verse 29. The end of the verse. Okay, if you, do, if you offend these people or try to persecute anyone who's worshipped their gods, then you'll be uh, torn limb from limb and their houses will be reduced to a rubbish heap. And then here's his conclusion. This is amazing. Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Three answers to his initial question in verse 15. What God is able to deliver you from out of my hands? The three friends, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. God's answer, I am able to deliver. He delivers them. And then King Nebuchadnezzar's own answer is, there is no other God who can deliver in this way. Only their God. God is amazing in power. And he often uses the largest stage to display his power and greatness, to shut up the mouths of the most powerful kings. We've seen it with Pharaoh, haven't we? That God uses this grand stage where they're, they're effectively controlling a big corner of the world. And God uses the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea to shut 
Pharaoh up and to show who really is the king, right? And here he does it again. And you know, God does that throughout history. When the eyes of the world are on one specific place of something that we may look at and say, what a great tragedy, that's when God shines. That's what happened at the cross, wasn't it? That the eyes of the world were on this small town, really a small hill, where this guy who claimed to be the Son of God comes and is now being crucified. Wow. The Son of God? He's not very powerful if He's dying. And yet, that is the great display of God's love and His power there at the cross, isn't it? And all the eyes of the world will be on this last battle at the end of the tribulation when Christ will come. And He'll show who the real King is. The King of all kings. God often uses the biggest stage to display His power and greatness. And so, that means that our confidence, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, should be in God's deliverance and should cause us to be uncompromising in our loyalty to Him. We are so confident in God's power that we're going to be uncompromising in our loyalty. And so that means for us several things. Number one, we need to guard ourselves against the rationalization of worshiping false gods. The, the, the rationalization of worshiping false gods. You're sitting at the work lunch table and the guys are talking and laughing and, and you know, you've kind of been delaying, waiting for a pause so that you can pray, but you don't want to make a big scene. And so you kind of drop your napkin on the floor and pick it up and while you're coming back up, you close your eyes quickly and pray. Or you're watching a movie with your friends who are unbelievers and you know you don't want to make a big scene to get up and walk out. You know they're going to continue watching it, but you need to move because this is not good. But you reason in your mind that you know it would be better for your relationship and for your future witness if you just made yourself like them as much as possible and just kind of ignore this one thing. After all, you're not agreeing with what's happening on the screen. And so you'll just sit there quietly. You think that would have worked for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, why don't we just bow down to this image, right? God knows our hearts and that we're not really bowing down to their God. When we bow down, let's actually bow down to the God who is over all. And, and God will know because He knows our hearts. We may be bowing down to this God, but we're standing up to this God in our hearts. I mean, think about it. What will happen to us if, our, if we lose our ability to influence the empire of Babylon? Right? If, if He does put us in the furnace and we die, then how can we be an example for God? How can God's name be exalted in our death if we're toasted in the furnace? I mean, we would get, God would get greater value out of us if we are alive than dead. So let's just this one time bow down to the idol while rejecting the idol in our hearts. Do you see the faultiness of that logic? Okay, God is calling us to stand up for the sake of truth and righteousness and not be willing to bow down to the false gods of this world. And that can show up in a number of ways. I gave a couple of examples. But guard yourself against your own mind's rationalization to worship false gods because, hey, you know what? We're not really doing it. We really do believe in the true God. Secondly, it means we must be confident that God can deliver right now. 
Are you confident that God can deliver right now? When life is difficult, can you count on the power of God? Do you believe that God has the power to deliver you? And that is what the narrative of the Old Testament is for. It's for our learning. To remind us that the same God that delivered Isaac from the knife of his father and Moses from the tyranny of Pharaoh and David from the the, the spear of Saul and Daniel's friends from the blazing furnace is the same God that has the power to deliver you here in our country, in our year, in 2014. It's the same God that can deliver you from your trouble. And so we must be confident in that. Why? Because we've seen Him work in the past. We've seen Him in the Scriptures. He's told us that He has that power. Thirdly, we must be confident that God will finally deliver. This is what the three friends were confident in. You need to be clear that they were not confident they would be saved from the blazing furnace. But they were confident that God would ultimately deliver them. That's what we need, we need to be confident in. God's final deliverance. That's what Hebrews 11 talks about. That many of these died without receiving the promise. And the point is, is that they had their eyes fixed on the promise that was for another time and another place. And so we need to recognize that, yes, God has the power to deliver me from my situation here on this earth, and He very well could, but if not, we know that He finally will deliver us one day. And even if I die because of this trouble, God will finally deliver me. And then finally, we must be committed to unqualified obedience. That means that no matter what the consequences, we are unqualified in our obedience to the Lord. That's the way Abraham was with the sacrifice of Isaac, right? God says, I'm going to give you a son. He gives him a son. And then he says, now kill him. Abraham says, excuse me? At least this is what I would be saying. Excuse me? This is the one that I'm going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Him? How is this going to work? See, Abraham was confident in God's power to deliver. And he knew that even if he didn't deliver Isaac from that immediate death, he would bring him back to life. We know that from Hebrews 11. Are you willing to obey God only as long as you see that it will get you out of trouble? Right? I'll obey God if He can get me out of this problem that I'm dealing with right now. I met lots of professing Christians who live like this. You know, as long as God delivers me from this challenge that I'm facing right now, well, I'll be in church. I'll read my Bible. I'll do all the things that He asks me to do. As long as He can deliver me from that. As long as He will. But what happens when they don't get the deliverance that they're looking for? Or what happens when they do get the deliverance they're looking for? What happens? Many times they fall away. Are you tempted to compromise in the midst of great pressure? Are you willing to be committed to unqualified obedience to the Lord no matter what the consequence? If you're tempted to compromise in the middle of great pressure, then remember the words of the three young Jewish men, probably in their late 20s to early 30s by this time. We know that our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But if not, we will not serve or bow down to any other God. Let's pray.
Father, You are able to deliver us to deliver us from all of our trouble and certainly our greatest trouble which was we were under Your wrath. We are confident in Your deliverance and Your power to deliver and we're confident in Your final deliverance. The hard part for us is we don't know what You're going to do day to day and how You're going to deliver us or if You are from the various trials that we face now. And so Lord, we ask for Your help and help and we pray that You'd help us to have the proper kind of faith that believes that You are and that You are a final rewarder of those who seek You. Lord, strengthen our faith because of the, the example of these three godly young men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.